Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFDP and FDP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. Welcome to the Insider Outsider podcast. This is a fascinating topic that we have today on inclusion and safety and that an inclusive workplace is a safe workplace. So we have three guests today. Lorraine Martin is the president and CEO of the National Safety Council, a nonprofit with a century-long legacy of eliminating preventable deaths and, death and injuries from the workplace to any place. Through her 35 years of experience in aerospace, including leading and developing global international business as an executive at Lockheed Martin, Lorraine is also honored to have served as an officer in the U.S. Air Force. Uh, Nicole Piggott is the president and co-founder of Synclusive. Nicole brings 25 years of HR senior leadership experience across a variety of organizations. And Wayne Pignolet shares his expertise as a senior consultant in the safety industry to the world of inclusive leadership, drawing parallels for how a safe workplace is an inclusive workplace. He also brings 33 years of experience leading companies large and small and is a vice president of operations here at WMFDP as well. So welcome, all three of you. Glad Thank to have you here. This, uh, I'm going to invite us to have a free-flowing conversation, a little bit about how we got connected in the beginning here, and then what's the connection that you all see around safety and DEI, and then a little bit about how that's created. So um, I uh, just want to open it up. Uh, Lorraine, you want to start sharing a little bit more about uh, how you got connected to us and a little bit about else you want to say about your background? Sure thing. And thank you, Michael. And thank you for having me for this really critical, uh, important discussion today. Um, as you're aware, uh, I met you in my a previous chapter in my life when I was in the aerospace industry, as you mentioned, with Lockheed Martin. And it is a, a fairly high consequence manufacturing environment and an environment where the tools that you're building are specifically to aim to keep the men and women around the world safe as they do their job. But now I am with the National Safety Council, so this new chapter, and it's really great to be able to have this conversation about how the issues of DE&I and safety interact. Uh, when I was working with you at Lockheed Martin, we were looking at how to make sure we were creating an inclusive corporation, one that is was focused on equity and inclusion. And, and I really appreciated the work that uh, your organization did with us. Uh, but now we're focusing on safety, uh, looking to how not only to create a safety of a culture of safety for folks when they're at work, but how do they take that home? And one of the things that we do at the National Safety Council is follow the data. And the data tells us that who you are, the color of your skin, where you were born, whether you're male or female, and other cultural identifiers truly impacts how safe you are at work or on the road. And that was a little bit of a uh, an interesting new understanding for me. And it's been wonderful to lean into this topic about how do you keep everyone safe at work and on the road um, with some of the great professionals that you have here today. So looking forward to the conversation. 
Awesome. Thanks. And Nicole, anything you want to add in addition to your background or how you got connected here? Um, sure, Michael. Thanks for having me. Great to, to join you all. Um, I come at this from my experience working in, you know, some of the major corporate workplaces uh, globally, the mining industry, the aerospace industry, and the transportation industry. And I was the head of safety in, in all of those industries and in these major players. And I've always been passionate about people. And I've always wanted everyone to get the most out of their work experience and to go home at night to their, their families. And what became starkly clear to me in my role as the vice president of, of, of HR and safety was that not everybody was going home um, in the same condition as they came to the workplace in the morning. And I started to see patterns emerging. And those patterns were often tied to those groups that were probably the most underrepresented in my workplaces, indigenous communities, women who were in non-traditional roles. And I started to see that if I was going to be committed as a senior leader of an organization to people going home at night to their, their families and a, a concept of zero harm, I had to be looking at those people who are the most at risk in the workplace. And it really was the connector for me to safety and diversity, equity, and inclusion. So that's that's what I bring to the table. I've worked as a woman, as a woman of color <laughs> in largely male-dominated industries. And I've seen that if we're going to really bring about change, we need to be looking at safety very differently than we have historically. Mm. I appreciate that, calling that out. And you and Lorraine, both similar, calling knowing who you are impacts your safety. And um, Wayne, I want to um, give you a chance to weigh in. Anything else about your background or path or uh, how you got connected to these other colleagues? Well, you know, I'm one of those people that got into safety because I got hurt at work. <laughs> and then <laughs> it got my full and undivided attention. And, you know, as part of that, and then I got into, um, again, I came out of, operations and working in uh, organizations as, as opposed to specifically in inclusion or safety. But then I did get hurt and that changed my life, really got me as like, oh yeah, that stuff can happen to you. And I've always been uh, hugely passionate about learning more about leadership. So it was a natural thing uh, between the getting hurt and safety. And then I got into doing uh, safety leadership, particularly working with people at the front line and really being in rooms with them and talking to them about how to lead safety and creating safety cultures and all that. And then through a personal relationship I had with you, Michael, I started to get interested in this whole other idea of inclusivity and equity and all that goes with DE and I and some of the other um, ways to describe doing this work. And what really became clear to me is they had this huge overlap, which is this in the term that gets thrown around, particularly now is psychological safety. Right. If you can't feel safe, you can't be safe. And then how can you really create? And this goes back to a lot of what Nicole and Lorraine have already said, which is you know, skin color matters. Gender matters. Um, you know, all those different differences that we have, all that collectively matters in how people are able to show up. And if we just want to pretend like we treat everybody the same, I think we're missing a lot. And in my work as a safety consultant, I heard that a lot is I just, I just treat everybody the same. Mm -hmm. I just treat everybody the same. And I think there's the miss and there's the opportunity. Mm -hmm. I, 
Wayne, I so appreciate so early you brought in, you can't be safe if you don't feel safe. So I hope we get to revisit that, Michael, in this discussion. Yeah, totally. Well, you all um, appreciate the backgrounds. And I think uh, this connection between safety and DEI or inclusion that you're starting to make and, uh, you know, you, you laid out some particulars around who you are. Are there more sort of backgrounds or numbers or figures that you want to point out and uh, other ways that you connect these two topic areas? If I could start with some of the numbers that I think sometimes uh, unless you look at them, you would never know that in our workplaces, who you are matters and who you are has a direct relationship of whether or not you're kept safe at work. So I'll just give you some of the quick numbers here, but there are racial disparities and they are stark. While white workers have a workplace fatality rate, and we hate to think about anyone dying at work, but they do, of 3.3 per 100,000 employees, the number rises to 3.5 for black workers and 4.5 for Hispanic and Latino workers. That's a significant more number of people over millions and millions of workers Um, who are not going home at night. And the disparity, the numbers are huge, so the disparities are also big and they're relevant. Um, The same is true for injuries and illness um, in the workplace of of who is getting injured and specifically the issue kind of that Wayne poked on, the fear of retaliation if you speak up. And those two things are directly connected. And that is also back to this issue of feeling safe at work truly will impact if you how you are safe at work, especially if you don't feel like your voice will be heard. Can you say a little more about the fear of, of retaliation? What's an example or two of that? Yeah, I'll do it, but I know that Nicole's itching yeah. to hear awesome. some of hers as well there. Um, but yeah, if you're in an environment at work and you do not feel like the insider, and I know you talked up front, Michael, about insider and outsiders. If you don't feel like the insider, you're going to be more cautious about uh, saying, raising your hand and saying, you know what, I'm not so sure what you're doing right there um, is by policy or if it, if it's or it may not be safe or raising your hand to say, you just gave me PPE that doesn't fit. Um, and I know that I am less safe because this PPE is flopping around on my face or too big for my feet. Um, and it's not going to keep me as safe as others. But you don't feel comfortable speaking up. You don't feel like someone's either going to hear you or if you've spoken up in the past and someone said, not your business, go do your job. You've just made yourself and others much more um, at risk. And it's directly related to your ability to feel comfortable that you can speak your mind, have it be heard, have it be respected, and not feel like you're going to have any retribution as a result of that, which we know in the DEI world is critical to changing culture and to having the right kind of environment for folks. So, mm-hmm. Nicole, I know you've got some real good examples here. I'm going to let you uh, take it from there. Thanks so much, Lorraine. And just for everyone's benefit, Lorraine and I go back. I'm a board member at the NSC, very proud board member of the NSC, and I've had the, the pleasure also of being on a panel with Wayne in the past. Um, I want to speak to the how important what um, Lorraine just mentioned is that whole notion of feeling safe to be able to report, it actually speaks to the fact that the numbers that she just shared with us, while stark, are probably an underrepresentation of the actual numbers of injuries in the workplace for these groups, because they don't dare share that they've been injured in the workplace for fear of the consequences economically for the most vulnerable in the workplace. So Frequently, those people in these higher risk jobs are also the people who are being paid less, 
than their, their, their racial counterparts. And they are also are the people who the consequences of losing their job can be detrimental to their, their circumstances outside of the workplace. So those concerns and fears actually make it such that I'm sure that there are plenty of people going home at night who are injured and don't dare say a thing and are working the next day injured and don't dare say a thing. So that's the first piece of what we need to keep in mind when we're saying the impact of psychologically feeling safe to report injury. Can you imagine working injured and how that puts you at further risk of additional injury or actual fatality? Um, so, so I just wanted to make sure that we were underscoring that the, the, the consequences of the economic impacts of of um, being psychologically safe to share your 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 situation. The other factor that um, Lorraine was alluding to some real examples. I worked in the mining industry, and we were in a hiring talent crisis. And as a result, I looked to hire women to do non-traditional heavy equipment operator jobs. And because the PPE that we were providing for them was just men's PPE that had been shrunk down to fit their feet, um, I was having an increase in twisted ankles and trips and, and falls in the workplace. And I... And this is speaking to some of the solutions that we need to share with your, your, your listeners out there. Mm -hmm. You have economic influence as a, as a client, as a customer with your PPE providers to say to them, I want PPE that fits my staff to make sure that my entire staff is safe and use that influence to make sure that your, your providers are providing PPE that's adapted to your staff's needs. So that's 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 what I did. And as a result, reduce the number of, of twisted ankles I, I was dealing with in in the mine. Mm. And Nicole, if I can build on that, because I've walked through lots of factories in my mm -hmm. old job and in the new job. And it, you have to make sure the PPE absolutely is available for anyone who might be in your workplace. And that is a very large demographic. I'm five foot tall, female. When I was in the military, not, not any of my PPE fit me. And it was a long time ago, but hopefully... Uh, we're doing much better there. But it's not just making it available. It's also making it really clear uh, that we're intentionally here to serve you. I walked through a factory just recently, and they had a nice wall of all of the hard uh, steel-toed shoes that the vendor could provide for the employees. You got one a year that you could buy uh, or get for free from the company. And they were all men's shoes on the racks. And not only you know does that send a signal that that's who our employees are, which of course, that's a very subtle um, kind of disparity on behalf of the probably half the workforce there. Uh, but it also might cause someone just to say, well, I guess I have to get the men's. I didn't even know that there were women's available to me. So it is being very intentional about as a supervisor of having your eyes open, of looking at everything and every message that you're sending regarding who is it we're serving here and how is safety available for you no matter no matter who you are. Yeah. And I just want to... Go ahead. I just I want to add a couple of thoughts. Thank you for all that. But it's like, and so I was away from the safety leadership role for three years, and now coming back in the last six months or so, and this issue came up, and I have to say I was surprised that it's still such an issue. Like, why isn't there a recognition that, of course, there needs to be men and women's appropriate PPE? 
right? And that's the other thing, uh, you know, the other part of this is like, what is, why is this so difficult? And this is, you know, as I talked about it before, um, I think I was at the, I said at the American Society of Safety Professionals uh, on January 26th, they had a full day um, Congress or uh, on DEI and safety. And what surprised me, not, it was good in a lot of good ways. There's a lot of really good stuff is I learned a lot about the why, but not about the how. And the other part of that is like, so how do you do this? And the other reality is I think there's in addition to that people are afraid to say people of color uh, of the underrepresented groups are afraid to step up. And I'm going to speak of being, this is in line with the work. And I know I'm bouncing a little here, but I think it's an important point to add, which is on the other side of it, often the organizations don't support people who look like me as a white male in how to step in. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of well-intended people out there. Um, and there's study there. Coqual did this study as this used to be the center for talent innovation. And they said that of um, the dominant insider group, about 42% are true believers, but they don't really know how to do it. And so about half the time when they see something, they don't step in and say something because A, they don't know how, they're afraid they're going to end up in HR and they're going to get in trouble for it. So it's that combination of both the individual leaders and some of the organizational support they need to be able to, so we can all work together and move together differently. Yeah, and I think part of that, Wayne, is do I see it? I may not see it. The fact as a male that there are other people that don't have shoes that are better fitting for them because I'm an insider. The men's shoes are mine. Or like you said, am I taught to just not see difference, not name difference because it might be offensive. And then I'm avoiding, I'm being cautious to not get myself in trouble. Then I'm not including and not helping name an issue that's going to create another awareness and resolution. And sometimes, and sometimes data helps there, especially in, you know, engineering or high consequence construction environments where uh, some of that softer stuff is a little bit less, um, you know, received. And the data sometimes can help. And so looking at your own data or even using industry-wide data or nationwide data about who is getting injured and and being able to say, well, something's happening in the world that that is disparate. Um, can we think about where it might apply here? And it sometimes just gives that kind of non-emotional piece to say, uh, we have something we need to look at. Um, and let's 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 ask ourselves, do you know, where do we look? Mm-hmm. Actually, you built you 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 raise a really important point. I think what we don't help people to to do and be is to be effective advocates in the workplace. And so they they may feel, to Wayne's point, absolutely believe this stuff. They absolutely do believe that, you know, women should have PPE that fits them. I'm sure they would absolutely believe that their people of color that they work with should go home at night safe and sound. But then they don't know how to manifest that advocacy and, 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 and add to that, that we have started to build a culture where if you make one misstep, it can actually be really, really damning for the individual. So people are afraid that if I make, if I say the wrong thing, or if I, or what I, despite my best of intentions, I've done something that may have offended someone, the consequences can be so Mm -hmm. dire 
that, or, and even if they aren't dire, the way, you know, we hear stories of, of dire consequences for people that have had a really big chilling effect on people actually verbalizing advocacy and stepping in for their, their, their coworkers. So how do we break that down? We have to open up a dialogue where we're actually prompting the conversation on how we can be effective advocates in the workplace. And, and that's really leadership. It comes back to Wayne's point on leadership. It's how do we give leaders the tools to be able to encourage advocacy in the workplace? And how is that advocacy exhibited in the workplace? And allowing for mistakes, allow for people to make mistakes, well-meaning mistakes. Well, and without making this political, and the reality is right now, the political environment has a lot of messages out there. What's happening with you know, in Florida, in terms of trying to prohibit DEI trainings, all that stuff has an impact, whether people agree or not, because they have to show up and then I'm going to step in here and get in trouble. Um, you know, one of our clients is a very public company and they've had some very public issues come up and the consequences for the person who stepped over a line were pretty dire, like you're done. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that, that, that's, I think that has, does have a, an impact on people, even though that may not happen in, you know, not so public environments, it's still that has an impact on how people show up. I'm afraid to. And if, I, if the organization isn't clear in what they believe and support around this, then I think it's that starts to set up a very tough environment for both sides of the both sides of this. Yeah, for sure. And it does have to be part of the leadership's convictions, part of the culture. Uh, not only from a safety point of view, but from an inclusion point of view, you know the safety the safety world does have it have a tool that often gets used to help make sure people's voices are heard. And that's like a a safety circle in the morning before you start your work, um, a tag up. There's all kinds of different uh, names for it. But it's a that safe space that that the safety community gets together and says, all right, before we go do this, what do we know? What do we see? You know, what's different today that we need to pay attention to? Um, and that does provide at least a little bit of a place to perhaps bring some of this conversation in a safe space and and find a way for the issues of inclusion and and voice and ensuring that everyone in this circle or whatever your your you know stand up is um, is going to go home tonight, everyone. Um, so I do think there that we there might be a unique place for the safety community to have some of these sometimes more difficult and politically charged conversations. You know, I used to say this just about safety is that, you know, there's a lot of examples of CEOs coming to companies that don't appear to have a safety issue, but they use safety to, to help the organization overall. And the reality is organizations who put people in harm's way to make money need to work at keeping people safe, right? And so there are a lot of already a lot. That's what I think is exciting about this is that there are a lot of mechanisms, to your point, Lorraine, that you can start to bring in this other message that's going to help both people feel more included and it's going to help your safety. Right? Yeah. And, and during and the result of the pandemic, I think we have another opportunity in that CEOs now know that they're humans being, being safe, being well, being well on all aspects is yeah. part of their responsibility to ensure that their organization can, can be successful and healthy as well. And that means that a lot of leaders have had to think about their employees on and off the job and what what's happening for them when they leave my 
my, you know, my work hours? And how do I make sure they come back healthy? And that means I need to care about them being healthy wherever they are. Um, and safety is a huge piece of that. And thinking about the whole person <laughs> and thinking about what is going on in their world, you can't keep themselves safe and healthy out there in the great big world without really thinking about who they are and what world they're going into. Uh, we do a lot around road safety because it's the dangerous thing, most dangerous thing anyone in the U.S. does every day is to get in a car or get in a truck um, for work or for others. Um, and the disparities there of who is getting killed and hurt on our road are even more drastic than they are in the workplace. Um, and so for leaders to think about their their employees, their most valuable asset, literally their most valuable asset, and, and what is happening with them when they leave my workplace has been something I think that has evolved over the last three years in a way that can be very powerful to trying to bring together uh, this issue of uh, feeling safe and being safe on and off the job. Mm. Yeah. I also think we have to factor in that we've got a new generation that is moving into leadership in the workplace that won't accept anything less from their leaders. They, they are not the same generation as Gen X and boomers who looked at their relationship with senior leadership in the workplace as more, uh, you know, we we were more compliant. We, were, we didn't challenge the status quo. We didn't question um, decisions and, uh, you know, uh, directions that were given to us uh, by leaders. Um, but the next generation absolutely does. They demand nothing less than an, an, an employer that puts their safety as a top priority, both their mental health as well as their physical health, and is looking to others, to, to advocate for others in the workplace to make sure that the most vulnerable are taken care of, which is really an encouraging sort of evolution of the workplace. As someone who's been in the safety space for 20 plus years, I've seen a complete change of this world. Like it really has changed dramatically. Uh, back in the day, all we were talking about were um, PPE and workplace behaviors and hazard identification. And it was a very sort of, a very, very sort of linear approach it was, it was very skill-based, I would very say. Very skill-based mm -hmm. approach. Right. It was like, I'm going to teach you a skill. Now you can go do it. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And now it's much more, it's a much more cognitive approach. It's a much more um, well-integrated in approach to safety. You're looking at safety from more than simply, to, to your point, Wayne, a skill-based approach to safety. It's more about... Um, what are the things that you haven't thought about? What are the things that that you 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 don't see in the the day to day? How are things changing? How dynamic is your work your the space that you navigate, and how is it impacting you? The other thing that we have to factor into is we've got groups in the workplace that like it or not, they were they had no influence. So women did not have influence in male dominated workplaces. They were, you know, the few that were in there were proud to say they were one of the guys. But we are now working in a workplace where you don't have to be one, one of the guys in order to be an effective contributor and an impactful contributor to what has traditionally been a male dominated workplace. Yeah. So it's just evolved tremendously over the years. You know, I'm going to take that 
women in this. I was working with a power company and we were working with the, the and this was the word, linemen. Mm-hmm. On the front line, the leaders of the linemen. And of course, ask the question, so do you have any women? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, so what do you call them? Yeah. Linemen. Well, you think they like it? Oh, yeah. They think that that's, that, that's what they want us to call them. I'm like, are you sure? Okay. And then we got in the conversation of what do you think it's like for them to be in that environment? What aren't they telling you? And they said something that I think ties into, which is, oh, no, there is, they, they're actually, some of them are even tougher than the men. Mm-hmm. Right. But then you go back to some of the data, Lorraine, that you have about the injury rates for women compared to men. Right. And all that. And it's like, so where aren't we? Not only are we not telling, but we're actually over efforting or taking unnecessary risk in order to fit in. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it is pretty stark again, mostly, especially for things like MSDs or ergonomics, you know, significantly more injuries for women because we built the workplace for who, you know, when 40, 50 years ago was in it. Um, and and the other, you know, if you just take one industry and it, there, there's some really um, important work that we need to do in the trucking industry. So mm. we've all heard that, you know, we need yeah. more truckers. We've got all of these Amazon and and other uh, uh, last mile of delivery vehicles that are racing around our, our communities to bring us the goods that we want. Uh, that trucking industry has had more women enter it, but it's still only 10% of the over the road truckers, but they experience 26% of the injuries. Mm-hmm. And and they feel very unsafe on on the job. The, out of a score of one to ten, they're at a four point four for feeling safe on the job. And mo- part of that is just because of the environment that we traditionally had for what we ask uh, truck drivers to do, and the environments that they put their trucks in park and sleep and and all of those things um, uh, yeah. make women literally uh, less safe in doing the job. So. Uh, you're right, uh, Wayne and Nicole. It's something that we really have to lean into, and and not necessarily say that you know the people in our workforce are want to be like you know like the linemen, right? Like 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 it had been in the past. They want to be themselves. They want to bring who they are, and and how they represent represent themselves in the world to their work, and and feel proud and accomplished with doing that. And sometimes that's hard to do, and sometimes it puts them at risk um, mm-hmm. of being more safe in the workplace. So really important to lead into. And I, and I can give you the stats on the roadway too. It's, it is also extremely just in general, a driver on the road um, is 73% more likely a woman to be in an injury or crash than a man and 17% more likely to die. And you might say, well, maybe they don't drive well. That's not the case. (laughs) The data says that they are in many cases as good as, and sometimes better drivers, but we don't build cars and we don't test them for the female body. We don't test them for small stature. Um, and we test them for sort of an average 1970s male. And that's the standard that we have on the books right now. And that's how, that's who we're trying to keep, keep safe in a car. Mm. Um, so again, there's so much that we need to do to understand who is actually putting themselves at risk. Um, and there are things that we can do. And it starts with leadership in the workplace, as you both said. It starts with that frontline supervisor, but it also uh, it has to be some of our legislators as well. When we think about some of these things that say what is safe um, and knowing that even those laws and some of those requirements 
aren't necessarily designed to keep everyone equally safe. So it's it, it has to be a multi multifaceted approach for sure. And Lorraine, I remember you saying that you've been doing work with uh, federal government, probably state governments as well, to, and have felt like you've been making some progress. Yeah, thank you for that, Wayne. Yeah, the, just recently, the Department of Transportation has put out their first ever national roadway safety strategy. Never had sort of a codified description of what it means and why, how we are going to keep people safe on our roads. And that just was put out. Um, and it has in it not only how to keep people safe, but some some very specific language regarding um, ensuring that efforts are made on our roads so that affirmatively approve equity outcomes on our roads and for those individuals. To your point, Nicole, a lot of times how we build our roads, which ones are safe, who has lighting, who has sidewalks, can have an economic impact on the folks that can use those roads or get to their jobs. So there's often an inner intersection of that. Um, But it also really focuses also on traffic enforcement, which we've heard certainly a lot about and making sure that that's done equitably, fairly, consistently, just, impartial, um, and that has to be at its foundation. So that that document for roadways and a lot of people who work are on the road as well um, is just really it, it's foundational and and groundbreaking because we've just never had it put in writing what our government is saying we need to do to have safe roads and what that means for equity. Um, another one that I just love that just came out recently, if I could, is that there's a new Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. So we didn't really have a lot of uh, acknowledgement to Nicole's point that women are in the workplace and, and many of them um, want to have children. And so they are working while they're pregnant. And now we have uh, a new law that uh, in, requires reasonable accommodation for a worker's limitation while they're pregnant and, and during childbirth and other related medical conditions. And uh, you would have thought we would have had that before. We didn't. Um, so it's really great to see that some of those things are being codified in legislation right now. And there are others examples of well that are really important. Um, as we move forward. So thank you for asking, Wayne. Yeah. Lorraine, you just, in a nutshell, just reinforced why I'm so proud to, to work with the NSC, because this is the important work that we absolutely need to be doing. We need to lead the way. We need to be that voice for those people who may not have a voice to make sure that we're bringing about positive change for our society, for our workplaces. Our workplaces are often sort of a microcosm and they're so powerful for influencing what happens in the broader community and society. So it's absolutely the place that we need to be. And we we also, you you triggered something that I struggle with in the work I do in the DNI space and, and, and safety. And it's often getting those people who have managed to build careers in non-traditional spaces to actually become advocates for others like themselves. So some of my biggest challenges are actually other women working in non-traditional environments. So, you know, women in mining, women in the aeronautical industry, when I've had conversations with them about advocating for change, I've had, you know, some women, you know, I don't want any special favors. I don't want anything done for me that wasn't done for others. And what they, what they don't realize is special needs have been taken into consideration for those who have been in the workplace traditionally, and they've largely been men. Why wouldn't you want 
adapted workplaces for you when you enter the workplace. That's no less or no more than has been given to those who have been in the workplace before. Mm -hmm. And you need to look at it that way. It's not something special for you. It's just what those communities and groups have had in the past. And we really do need to challenge that thinking that somehow you're doing something that's sort of special for that group. It's not. It's exactly what you've done for other groups in the workplace. Yeah, that's so powerful, Nicole. Thank you for saying that. Um, when I went through the journey with with Michael and his team, I don't want to say how many decades ago, a while ago, <laughs> that had primarily to do with DEI. I did first come to that to say I don't want it to be about my gender. I never want my gender to be the thing. I want it to be my performance, the you know the leadership I'm bringing. It took a wake up call from from some DEI work to say it. I do need to know and recognize that I'm female and that others are, and that I can be a leader and an advocate and that there are things because of that, that need to be addressed or accommodated or supported. Um, so yeah, I had to go through my own journey. So I'm sure there's plenty of folks that are on a journey um, and we have to figure out where they are and meet them there and uh-huh. and then lend a hand. And I also, uh, go ahead, Michael. Well, I also think, you know, if you as a woman are saying, I don't want that focused on, um, as a male, I don't want to use that as an excuse. See, we don't need to look at gender because you don't want you want to be, have that minimized. Um, one of your strategies is to maybe belong and assimilate, and you're tired of having that focused on you. The next woman next to you is like, finally, you see that part of me. Thank you. It's like, and I'm like, well, which is it? Do you want me to see your gender or not? And yet, how do I, when it comes to safety, how do I see? what I don't see with new eyes and know what you're navigating that I'm not. And um, how do I learn that over time? Um, Not just with gender, but any difference, race, language, you know, I remember a guy in charge of a shipyard that, you know, white guys, like there's a lot of Hispanic people that don't even understand the safety briefings here. Yeah, thank you for bringing that. Michael, I think sometimes you do have to start with something that's pretty tangible, whether it's the data whether it's someone's size and they people can realize that, yeah, that PPE probably doesn't keep them safe um, and or issues of language because they're very tangible. They're very um, non kind of emotional. They're a little less squishy than some of the other issues. And I have found that it's a good place to start with some safety professionals because they they'll say, oh, yeah, I get that. You know, if the person doesn't understand English as well as I do, they're not going to understand the safety briefing and they may not feel comfortable raising their hand and saying, I don't understand. And so now they're going to go to that that operation without, you know, the information needed to keep themselves and others safe. Plenty of exa- examples in workplaces where language has been the issue that got someone hurt or are killed um, um, tragically uh, mm-hmm. because they didn't understand. So starting there sometimes I think is is a, is a nice bridge, truthfully. You can't Lorraine, stop there, but it's a good place to start. Mm-hmm. No, here, I- here to that, that comment, because I'll give you two examples that I experienced in the workplace. So when we were talking about PPE that fit um, women's feet, let's just take boots, uh, steel, steel cap boots that fit women's feet. The example I gave is how many of some of my, some of the men that worked with me who had feet that were 17 and higher, that we had, you know, were squeezing themselves sometimes into boots that didn't fit them. And I gave them the example of how at risk do you feel when your feet are killing you because they're being squashed into boots that are too small? 
And conversely, think about what it means to be in boots that are too big. So that was a really good segue for me to get people to sort of say, make it relatable for them. I can relate to my feet killing me because my boots are too small. The other example I gave is we in in our industry, in the industries I've worked in, have had a lot of people go work in expat um, in assignments. And I said to them, so take, for example, when you've had to go, you know, work in Papua New Guinea or work in other or or work in the Philippines and you're working in other uh, countries where the first language is not English. And think how at risk you would be if they hadn't taken made the effort to put signage in English for you to ensure that English speaking expats working on on those sites were safe. And that helps them to be able to draw the connections. So that's been helpful for me. Yeah. And Nicole, thank you for that. A story, if I could real quick tell, has to do exactly with that. When I was at Lockheed Martin, we were building some aircraft in Italy. Um, and one of the aircraft was in a hangar. It was getting ready to be um, signed off and delivered. It was a really tight schedule. So everybody was really focused on getting it completed. Um, and a storm was rolling in. This was in Camry and they roll over the lake and it's a really bad situation. So uh, the aircraft was still open at the time with the cockpit and other other aspects of it. And so we needed to get the hangar door closed uh, as the storm rolled in and, and a, an expat, um, an, an English speaking person, uh, raced to the front of the, the hangar to shut the hangar door. Nothing was in English and he hit the fire suppressant system, uh, which caused, you know, if you've ever been in fire suppressant in a hangar, it's this white foam that goes everywhere and the aircraft was open and it was a big, big deal. And the poor person. We did that to them. We didn't train them uh, to know um, the difference between the two mecha- mechanisms and didn't have English or or some kind of other training to support them. So we let them down. Um, but it was just a stark yeah. reminder of what you just talked about is making sure that everyone, no matter who they are, where they are, um, has the tools to p- keep themselves and the property safe. And uh, in this case, we didn't. Um, and it was a big lesson to be learned. And I'm sure everyone um, in those kinds of industries has an example of something like that, as you've just shared. I'm sure. You no, know, I was just reminded of a study. There's a ProPublica study about uh, temp workers, how much more likely they are to get hurt. And I think a lot of it's analogous, whether there's and there are race, gender, socioeconomic, all those things come into it. But, you know, the worst thing that happens to you in a temp work is essentially legally in the U.S., you get fired at the end of the every day, then you get rehired the next day. That's how the system basically works. But if you get on the thing, hour do not return so you're coming in you're often asked to do the work nobody else wants to do you're afraid to ask if i ask they might i might get a dnr and it goes back to what you were talking about earlier nicole i need this money for my family so i'm going to do everything i can and as a result i can't remember the exact number but in some states you're five times more likely to get hurt as a temp worker than full-time employees And they have some in the, the, in the study, they have some really sad yeah. stories. For all right. the reasons we just talked about, you know, maybe you didn't get your training. Maybe yeah. you didn't get the right equipment because uh, you're coming and going. Maybe you don't speak the language because a lot of the, the temp work is in construction or in agriculture or in forestry. Those kinds of very high consequence and high turnover day day labor, basically, that um, really does put people extremely at risk. It's a place, the whole gig economy and the whole and and temporary workers, yeah. while that's been a great thing for folks to have a side, a side hustle, as they call it, and something extra to do, it's a place for us to make sure that we're keeping them equally safe in the data, as you say, Wayne says, we are not. Yeah. 
I wanted to thank you for that. I wanted to just go back to the trainings uh, that we talked about in this skills base. And Michael, you alluded to something I think that it's that we do well, which is, you know, if there's skill based hard skill skill over here, we actually approach it from that awareness. And Michael alluded to that. We will call it the head and the heart. And you need both. And that takes time and energy because that's where the lasting change comes from. Right. And it's somewhere in between. And, and I think as I think about some of the challenges are and Nicole, I'm interested in your experience of this, which is some of the challenges of bringing and say, hey, go do DEI training at the front line to help those frontline leaders do this differently. Right. And it's like, how much time is an organization willing to invest in that? How do you get them so they're not just doing it by rote and not really an understanding? It? And those are the and of course. What's the longevity of that as a investment, right? And so I'm curious about what some of the things that, uh, you know, in your experience, you've seen work or not work. Well, it's that's such an important point because let's let's all be real here. In the last three years, we've seen a focus on DNI. It's the sexy topic right now, um, due to all the visibility that we've we've had and some insights that we've had of the disparities out there. But there's a difference in the way organizations approach DNI. There's what I call performative right. diversity, equity, inclusion, and really that's where an organization is really a, it's a check the box exercise. Um, I want to look as if this is important to me, and I want to look as if I'm bringing about change. But I'm, but they're not really interested in transformation. And when we had a little chat before, we were talking about the difference between sort of that check the box exercise and how safety and DNI is a transformational journey. Like we're talking about changing mindsets and behaviors in the workplace. What I've seen that that, that works, and Wayne, you you hit on it um, when you talked about the head and the heart. It's got to mean something to those that you're talking to talking about. They have to be able to relate to what, why it's important and why it's important to them. A bit about the what about me-isms. Like they need to, as individual employees, understand why it should be important to them. At Synclusive, we look at it from a three sort of legged stool approach. Yeah. And we, we really think you change individual sort of belief that this is important and why it's important. And a lot of it is talking about how you as an individual have someone who is from some in some way, shape or form from a marginalized community. We have everybody knows someone who's elderly. Everybody knows somebody who is, you know, or comes from one of those marginalized groups, elderly, young, um, from the LGBTQ plus communities, from a, a racialized or, or culturally different community. Or neurodivergent, somehow coming from, has approaches the workplace, who's, has been the one who's, who's considered as strange or different in the workplace. So everybody has some way that they can relate to difference. Uh, they have a woman in their, in their life, so they can identify with, with, you know, someone who's from that group. So that's one of the things that we look at. But then we, you can't do that without looking at systems. So the biggest piece of the conversation with organizations is it's one thing to change mindsets, but unless you're looking at how you're going to change those systems in the workplace. So how do you look at safety differently? How do you look at hazards through a lens that 
that you haven't looked at before. Lorraine talked about it. How are you looking at signage? Because people will throw up and say, well, we've got safety signage in the workplace, but can everybody read that sign? Is your definition of literacy looking at literacy through one lens and not looking at literacy through a broader lens? Um, and so on and so forth. And the last thing is, how do you demonstrate as leaders, as an organization, that this is important to you? It's as important to you as profits. It's as important to you as safety. It's as important to you as other things that you measure, that you track, and that you evaluate. And so that, if with absent those three things, you're going to see, we're going to be having this conversation five years from now, three, uh, 10 years from now, and we would have made as little change as we've seen in the last 25, 30 years. Hmm. I, I hear that, Nicole. I hear, I hear that saying, if you don't take a cultural change mindset to this, and you think it, just training individuals is going to change your culture by itself, it's like, no, for both safety and DEI, it's they're about creating culture change systems shifts through equity lenses all that and making it personal it's got to be personal <laughs> when you talk to people about what if your daughter mm. was going to be injured because you were not providing ppe basic ppe that kept them safe would that be okay with you mm -hmm. what if your sister your partner were you know something as arbitrary as that was meaning that they weren't going to come home at night would that be okay with mm -hmm. you and when you bring it to them like that, it, it, it brings about a realization that we have yeah. choices that we need to make. Yeah, thank you, Nicole. And at the National Safety Council, we have a new series called Safety is Personal for that exact reason. So we can get to the heart and the head. And Nicole did one of our early interviews, and they have been so powerful to hear individual stories about why safety has become something that is so important to them. And unfortunately, many times it's because they have had someone they've lost, whether it was a, a family member, a community member, or workplace. And we want to get to a point where we can have it be personal before you have to have one of those life-changing events. Um, Michael, it, it made me think of a little bit about what some of this new work that we're doing um, here. And we're going to have a report later this summer that really looks at what's called the hierarchy of controls. And you guys were just talking about, you know, PPE is basically PPE saying there's a threat and I'm just going to put something around the human to try to prevent them from it hurting them. And that's like the lowest level of that's action you want to take. Nice. Yeah. You want to go up this pyramid and and change the environment, change the, the culture, change what's going on in getting the work done so that the risk is taken out of the environment as much as you can. And that's that hierarchy of controls. And we're going to be putting out a report that looks at how does that hierarchy of controls for physical safety intersect with Things having to do with mental health, with impairment, well-being, uh, feeling included, um, stress, morale, and and the overall work culture that you just described. And how do those two things interplay? Uh, because we all know, I think, and we've been talking about here for the last 45 minutes or so, that they do intersect. And you can't have physical safety without all of those other aspects being part of your culture. But mm -hmm. for some folks, we're going to have to make it really sort of real, tangible, um, you know, an equation of some sort of showing how you really can reduce physical reduce physical safety risk by addressing some of these other issues. So I'm looking forward to that report. It should come out later awesome. uh, later this year. Awesome. I want to say one thing that occurs to me, and again, it goes 
back to this idea of, you know, having spent a fair amount of time in the room with frontline leaders. Right. And it's like, it goes, yeah, there's skills and all that. But what I'm, I think is exciting as we start to bring this inclusion lens and the equity lens into leaders and helping get awareness that well-founded safety leaders already have a lot of the skills. Mm-hmm. And, and for example, I see you walking around not wearing your PPE. As a leader, I have a choice to make and I have to figure out how to do that in a way. I don't want to blow you out of the room. In fact, I want to build trust with you. And I think also, so a lot of, um, you know, I'm going to use the word good. A lot of safety leaders have ways to have those interventions and the good ones have figured out how to do it in a way that, okay, hey, look, I care about you, which goes back to this idea. And when I worked for Balmer, it was what we called the case for safety. I don't think there's anything special about that. Worked with everybody. What's your case for safety? Okay. They're at home right now. I have a grandkid, six months old on Friday. Right. And, um, and so I, I'm actually, I think that's, what's exciting about it. I think a lot of organizations that have invested in safety leadership, they have in a way laid the foundation. So if we can figure out ways to bring this other awareness in and to get them to get in the head and the heart, so they start to bring that out. So when I see a microaggression, right. That I say something, and I'll just tell you a quick story. I was working with another power company in the middle of the country. And on the last day of a four-day program, they had their new CFO in the middle of a what we call a fishbowl. And people could come in and talk to them. And the, um, one of their frontline leaders came in, 30 years working the same company, 20 years. He said, I've been working with the same people. And he said they had, this company had put the gay pride flag up over the building for the for a month. And they had gotten a lot of internal and external pushback about it. And so it created, it was a real topic of conversation. And anyways, this frontline leader came in and said to the CFO, please don't do that. It's divisive. Hmm. I've lost, and this goes back to that case for safety. And this is, this was a smart, caring person who, you know, we might have judgments of, I don't think they would define themselves that way right? Whatever that judgment may be, mm-hmm. but please don't do it. It's divisive. I've already lost two of my buddies on my watch. We don't need anything more else to divide us. And then we do what we did and came back in. I said, so imagine that you're someone and with permission said, you know, imagine you're somebody who you don't know is LGBTQ or has some yeah. other identification. Absolutely. Right, whatever's are different. Sorry. Okay. Um, and they just heard that, or they heard a microaggression or some joke or something, and you didn't say anything. Do you think they're gonna speak up? And well, I, I guarantee you, Wayne, to the point that you're making, there were are definitely employees in that organization well, right. who fall into that group who have never spoken up and who have endured for a huge portion of their career, those sorts of comments and, and haven't dared to even come advocate for themselves. Yeah, exactly. In, in those circumstances. So it was, in fact, it was not divisive. It was actually something that was was telling folks, we, you're important to us. Right, exactly. Right. My, my Again, I think that it's, again, that's part of the, ch- ch- totally agree. Yeah. And that's the challenge you're stepping in is, yeah. um, and so how do we bring that awareness to this group who have a lot of the skills, the hard skills, mm-hmm. but start to see it. And it was, you could see him go, oh, mm-hmm. and there's mm-hmm. the start to something. No, he, 
this individual gets to choose what they do with it. Right. That's right. Absolutely. But at least it was like, and afterwards he came up to me and he was like, they're always my favorite in their train in trainings, both safety and this, they come in at first, they're in the back row. Yeah. <laughs> Arms, Arms crossed. crossed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, by the end, yeah, by the end, they come up and go, oh, you know, I don't want to be here. But this was actually pretty good. Got me thinking. Perfect. Right. Well, you know, it's, it's somewhat it's about what, what Nicole, you suggested coming back to, which is if you can't, if you can't feel safe, you can't be safe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think the safety community is a, a wonderful place to start because they are. Uh, you know, there to keep someone safe and send them home. So they have a they have a piece of the heart already. Mm-hmm. It's just a hope having them see things in a new light, um, bringing them, you know, whatever it takes, the data, the storytelling uh, to help them see this. There are still safety leaders today. And I had this occasion just last week uh, where I, I'm coming to do a presentation. And I said, I would like to include DE and I in, in part of my safety presentation. And the safety leader said, I don't see how that applies. <laughs> I said, ooh, this is going to be fun. Um, but i think that's a great place to start for all the reasons that we've talked about here today um but we also have to remember everybody's on a journey and we have to have to meet them there and and help them along so and i know we're going to run out of time but i'm actually curious about each of your experiences with this maybe michael you have some it is like is like at the at the individual leadership level we've talked about that but it's also organizationally where who do how do we get chief diversity officer and head of safety or head of manufacturing talking together? Talking together. Yeah, because it's, you know, I mean, my, what I think I know is it happens in some cases, but there's probably lots of opportunities to, yeah. to start to talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And, and just a simple question that you could bring to, you know, either to the DEI lead in your organization or the safety lead in your organization to say, you know, how does, can you see where DEI or, or what, in what places does the fact of inclusion or or having a voice or feeling included or, or belonging? How could that affect your safety uh, profile and vice versa in the DEI world? Is there anything we're talking about here that might make people literally less physically safe? Um, nice. And I bet they'll get to some things pretty quickly. Sometimes it's just opening mm-hmm. the discussion uh, with a question coming from the other perspective. So have you all? I mean. If you were in charge of safety or in charge of anything at an organization that put people in harm's way, would you, what would you do for a 40% reduction in safety incidents? Yeah. Because, you know, that's what the Gallup poll, I'm sure you all have seen it, that there's a 2017 Gallup poll that said oh, three out of 10 U.S. workers strongly, only three out of 10 workers strongly agree that their opinions seem to count. Mm-hmm. And they track that if they, you could double that to six to 10, that you had a 27% reduction in turnover, a 40% reduction in safety safety incidents, and a 12% increase in productivity. That's gold. Uh, That's really good, right? You talk about data to compel, right? So. Yeah, I was was reading some uh, DEI reports in the last few days about generational differences, and there's so much stress in people these days from the last years of COVID and now. So uh, you talk about creating a culture of care, Wayne, um, and people's well-being paid attention to, and those that's so much overlap between safety and inclusion and belonging. Yeah, so the in the last few minutes, any other parting thoughts? And either of you haven't really appreciate this conversation. I think if I could, if I could just leave what I'm taking away from this conversation, what 
is the conversation I have with the clients I work with and the people I work with is you cannot bring about the change that we're looking for because we want sustained change. We don't want something to be a change that's just for as an event. We want it sustained. It has to be an integrated approach. So how do you bring DE&I and safety together? You're not going to be bringing about true safety in the workplace unless you're looking at through DNI, and you're not going to bring about true inclusive workplaces unless you're looking at safety. It's integrated. They, you have to be looking at every aspect of the workplace if you're looking at bringing about safe workplaces and inclusive workplaces. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And I would add a third leg of that, which is leadership development. You have to look through a leadership development lens around how do I lead DEI? How do I lead safety as a way to create that culture? And I would just end with saying, as Wayne just said, there's just so much opportunity if we do lean into this and we bring these two aspects of our our businesses, our cultures, our communities together, we will save lives and we will have less people injured. Um, and it just will, it, it takes us leaning in and doing it together. Yeah. And, and I would just say, I'm just honored to, to have this conversation with all of you. So thank you for joining, joining me, joining us. Thank you, uh, Lorraine and Nicole and Wayne, and um, appreciate the work of the National Safety Council and our collaboration. So thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFTP and FTP Global, visit wmfdp.com slash podcast.